Neither College, Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, Monday afternoon, October 25, 
Uh, he probably never seen it before. Maybe she was beautiful. I don't know. But anyway, this was politics. And what on earth is the use of marrying Pharaoh's daughter if you can't get any payoff when the time comes? Here's Pharaoh, king of Egypt. This may not have been the same one, but violating that truce and making an attack on Jerusalem. See, well, what's the use of marrying Pharaoh's daughter if Pharaoh is going to attack you anyhow? And uh, for Rehoboam, you see, this was cowardly. It was at a time when the kingdom of Judah was weakened by this split and was unable to resist a first-class power like Egypt, of course. And uh, so it was a pushover. Here comes Shashak, and he uh, captures Jerusalem, no trouble at all. Poor Rehoboam couldn't help it. And he didn't destroy the city, but he looted it and took a lot of um, gold shields from the temple. These were the National Gold Reserve. Where do we put gold after digging it up in Alaska? So enough, we dig it up out of the ground in Alaska and put it under the ground again in Kentucky, you know. The story of a, of a um, Kentuckian boasted to a Texan, something you should never do. He boasted to a Texan that had enough gold in Kentucky to build a solid gold wall three feet high here around the entire state of Texas. And the Texan says, you have, have you? Okay, my friend, go ahead and build it. And when it's finished, let me know. I'll come and look at it. And if I like it, I'll buy it. Now, <laughs> uh, the National Gold Reserve, such as we still have left, is at Fort Knox, Kentucky. A lot of gold there doesn't belong to us. It's also foreign country. But where were the people of Stalin's day to put their gold? Where did it be safe? They didn't have any Fort Knox. But it was made into these ornamental gold shields and strung up around the corridors of the temple area and buildings. Uh, this was not safe like Fort Knox, you know. You try to get into Fort Knox and see if you can even get near the place. But it, there was a religious taboo against stealing it out of the temple. It would be a bold and brazen atheist that would dare to do this. And so this was really the safest place they could put it. And this is the the financial reserve of the nation in here. And this, Sashek, <clears throat> had the nerve to simply cop and take. It went to Egypt when he left. There was gone. And Rehoboam, you recall, he helped us to prevent this, and he, however, made the brass shields to replace them. These, however, as he could do, these weren't gold shields. They weren't like what they'd had before. All right, that was Sashek or Shishan. And the archaeology has discovered this fellow in 429, his embalmed body, covered with a gold mask, discovered 1938 and 9 in Karnak, Egypt, anciently called Thebes. And with his conquest, including his invasion of Judah, and also he did make a raid into the northern kingdom of Israel, and also at Megiddo in Palestine, as part of a monument or a pillar of this stela, this man has been discovered, proving that he had been there, and you could say, so I was there. Yeah, Mr. James. Do you know the Yeah, this is known from, um, I haven't got it here, but this is known from Egyptian records. He's one of the sequential Egyptian kings, I'm sure, that the date of this man is known. And uh, we know the date of um, Rehoboam, this would be, um, he would have become king and when the kingdom split about there for 930, 
7 B.C. or after that a little bit. So it would Well, you could get the date of this king, but this wouldn't prove necessarily that he was king for many years. This wouldn't prove that the exact date of his uh, raid on, on Jerusalem or on Palestine. So there'd be some... Yeah, I think, I think it would help to, to establish this. Sure. But not exactly. Yeah. Now, um, this goes on out of Damascus. The steel of Ben-Hadad I. Ben-Hadad simply means the son of Hadad. This would be called Hadad if he were an American. And then this cleared up a problem uh, about the kings of Syria. Ben-Hadad, discovered 1940. In the Bible, in the, I didn't bring mine again, in the First Kings, chapter 15, verse 18, it gives a list of three or four kings of Damascus, and uh, this is now confirmed, not that we as Christians need a confirmation, but historians like it, this is confirmed by the discovery of this pillar, which lists the same king. And the first of the list is Hezion, H-E-Z-I-O-N in the Bible, and in the Syrian or Aramean language of this inscription, Hadian, H-A-D-Y-A-N, the time about 900 uh, B.C. Now, uh, this uh, country of Syria, you see, got together. There been five very small, unimportant, localized kingdoms. Aram Zoba and Aram Nechorayim and so forth. There were five of them. They got together into one with capital at Damascus under a series of strong kings, and this made them a threat to Israel and Judah. Have a neighbor that strong. If Canada didn't like us and was eight times as strong as the United States, uh, we might worry about it. Or if north of the St. Lawrence River there was instead of Canada, the Soviet Union, I think this might cause us some worry. I'm not worried about the Canadians. There are people in Mountain joining us. But you see, there's a power, a real power, that from the human standpoint was much stronger than Israel and Judah put together on their northern border. And uh, this made a threat. And uh, this, uh, of course, uh, if God is on your side, that overbalances anything else. But the trouble is uh, the people of Israel and Judah couldn't always count on God being on their side because they weren't always taking the trouble to be on God's side. Now, uh, Abraham Lincoln was that during the darkest days of the Civil War. Mr. Lincoln, do you think God is on our side? To which Lincoln replied an often quoted statement, and I said, what I'm really concerned about is, are we on God's side? That's, that's something. If you make sure you're on God's side, you can count on a kind of help that um, the enemy won't have, you know. But uh, this, this made a real threat there. And um, so you have 150 years here in the 800s and just before, in which Syria was a serious threat. And uh, one of the foolish things that a king ever did in this world, this is section 431 still, Asa, king of Judah, on the whole a good man, one of the ones that feared the Lord. But he committed the first class boo-boo here. And what was it he did? This is Old Testament history rather than archaeology, but it'll tie in a little bit. 
What was it Asa did that was a cool thing to do? Well, would it be a good sense for us to make a um, binding military alliance with Soviet Russia to get help against a possible threat from Canada? You know, are you going to sign up with the devil himself to get help against a, a minor um, possible enemy that uh, isn't really very important? And here's what Asa did. He bribed Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, to make an alliance with him against the northern kingdom of Israel. So here he's bribing a foreign heathen ruler of an enemy country to come on his side against the kingdom of Israel that was really their own flesh and blood. And this made Syria much too strong uh, and it finally brought Assyria into the picture against both Israel and Judah. It was a crazy thing to do. Now, among the uh, kings of Israel that were powerful in this time, first was Amri. Amri, the father of Ahab and the father-in-law of that lovely lady Jezebel. Amri, king of Israel. He gets only a short paragraph in the Bible. As God raised people, Amri didn't raise. But politically, he was really important, and he uh, won some important victories. The discovery of the Moabite stone proves that Amri, king of Israel, conquered the area of the land of Moab on the other side of the Jordan River. Now, there's a picture here in the it's better than the one in Unger's book, so I'll pass it around in a minute. But uh, I want to read you one statement. This Moabite stone, uh, discovered 1868 in Transjordan, this is important for two or three reasons. In the first place, this proves that the Moabite language was virtually identical with Biblical Hebrew of the same period. Not quite, but pretty nearly identical. It's the longest inscription in Moabite that we have, and one of the earliest for, uh, if you count it as similar to Hebrew, for Hebrew. Moabite stone. It was put up by Misha, king of Moab, to celebrate his victory over Israel. And first Amri had conquered Moab, and then later Misha, king of Moab, turned the tables and defeated Israel. And after they did, he bragged about it in this pillar which he put up. Now, the God of Israel was Jehovah, of course, or the Lord. And the God of Moab was Chemosh. And Chemosh was one of the ones that was worshipped regularly and according to books by human sacrifice. And they burned little babies to and worshipped him by human sacrifice. And this is what... Uh, Misha, king of Moab, said he did to the uh, people of one place in the kingdom of Israel that he captured. Timo said to me, go take Nebo against Israel. And I went by night and fought against it from the break of dawn till noon. I took it and slew all. Seven thousand men, boys, women, and girls, and female slaves, I had consecrated it to Timo. And I took from there the vessels of Yahweh, Jehovah, and dragged them before Chemosh, the sacred object from the worship of the Lord. They got dragged to put in the temple of Chemosh somewhere. 
But 7,000 from one town completely put to death. This puts me lying in the shade. Not that two wrongs make a right, of course, but a terrible thing to do. And he boasted that in this story. Now, Hester's around, and this was discovered in 1868, and he had a good there. And probably he'd get down the moon for it by throwing it in a piece of bread and a hole where they heated it. They heated it on a good hot fire, and then they poured cold water on it, and cracked it to pieces, and uh, nearly ruined it. But fortunately, before they did this, the French um, official that was around there had made a squeeze of it. That's, he put black paper on it, something to make an impression, something like carbon paper. Had made a squeeze of it that gave the complete text of the writing. So later they brought up the pieces from the local Arabs, and it's now in the Louvre, I believe, in Paris. And, um, and the, the part that uh, was broken and damaged has been restored in the Someone that's here, Pastor Parrish or something, and the writing put on it. So uh, for a standpoint of historical study, it's as good as new, although it's a shame that it was broken like that, Mr. Nash. Uh, it was Nash, the king of Moab, that killed those people. Yeah, mm-hmm. This was on the, on the comeback, you see. They recovered the ball after the touchdown. And um, he was coming back at him now. And Amra had defeated them. Now later they defeated him and celebrated by sacrificing these people as a mass human sacrifice to their god Kima. This kind of thing, typical of heathen religion in the ancient Near East, somebody tells you that uh, people of heathen countries have a religion that they like and we shouldn't disturb them by sending missionaries. Tell them they'll learn a little more about the pagan faith of the world than they already know. And they'll get a different view on some of these things. Now, uh, the, uh, coming down then to uh, the importance of this stone, 435, this confirms the statement of the Bible and proves that Amri, king of Israel, had conquered the land of Moab, which was the uh, disputed by some people before. Samaria, 436, the site of Samaria. This has been fairly excavated and um, a great deal found there. This was a big city, capital of the northern kingdom, and so built and established by this man Amri. Greatly and strongly fortified. And uh, the earliest level the deepest down goes back to the time of Amri and his son Ahab. Any of you happen to remember from Bible 102 how long a siege Samaria was able to stand when the Assyrians attacked it? Three years. Jerusalem, attacked by Babylon, only held out for two years. But Samaria, a smaller place than Jerusalem and probably less people, but still probably jam-packed with refugees, had a better water supply than Jerusalem, and of course they must have stockpiled a terrific amount of food, and it lasted three years. Very strongly fortified and lots of big systems to hold water. Now, um, this man Amri was so important in the international ancient Near Eastern scene that other countries referred to the land of Israel as Bit Humri, which is just another spelling of Beit Amri, which would be Hebrew, which is the house of Amri. 
you suppose that the Soviets and the Socialists refer to the United States as Nixon land? Or a few years back, Johnson land or Kennedy land? And sure not. But uh, even a uh, good long while after this fellow Amar was dead, they were still referring in uh, official notices and so forth to Israel as Bet Humrai or the House of Amrai or Amrai land. And the king of Israel was called Mar Humrai. This means son of Amrai, even though he was not even related to him, but he was his successor. Now then, uh, Ahab, <coughs> he, um, what do you think of Ahab? Was Ahab um, a hen-pecked husband or was he a great warrior? <laughs> I heard a minister describe it how Jezebel came in, found Ahab all mixed because he couldn't get Naboth's vineyard. And she said, Are you the ruler of Israel? And Ahab replied, After you, my dear. <laughs> now, uh, that isn't quite fair to Ahab, but it's certainly true that Jezebel brought no doubt about it. But um, apart from that, when he was dealing with men, not with women, Ahab was quite a guy. And uh, his main mistake was ever to have married Jezebel and let her dictate policies about things. But Ahab won two famous, notable victories over Syria, with the help of God, of course. But two of them, and uh, uh, this was very important for the freedom and independence of his country. Ahab also joined a whole coalition of other kings to fight the Assyrians and furnish 2,000 chariots and 10,000 soldiers. Now, uh, let's see, 443, Salmon Egypt, an Assyrian king, claimed a victory in this war in which Ahab and others fought against him. Unger says this is very doubtful that it was really a victory. He did not press on until six years later to take Hamath and Damascus. He realized these ancient kings never recorded the defeat. If they didn't win, at least it was a tie. They would still write it up. They were not interested in recording that, uh, that they it didn't bother their conscience to get the truth somewhat in these monuments. So, Andre says it's doubtful that he really did, Shalmaneser, this king from Nineveh, really did win this great victory that he claimed in his monument. The black obelisk of Shalmaneser III, you know, um, this is the photo in um, Wiseman's book that I didn't bring, but there's also a photo in Andre's book here on page 251. And there's a photo in that book by Thomas that was passed around of a whole page. And there's one in Mr. Beatty's book. Yeah, right inside there. Second panel from the top. This is an Assyrian monument. It was found in 1846 near Nineveh, near the site of ancient Nineveh. And this shows in the second panel from the top, Jehu, king of Israel, up here. Yeah. It shows Jehu down on his hands and knees in front of the Assyrian king. 
Now, let me point out who this guy is. Jesus is the fellow that had Jezebel thrown out the window and drove his chariot over her. When it came to chariotizing queens, he was really tough, a valiant man. But um, when it came to standing up to the real foreign enemies of his country, Jehu was uh, not so bold. And he went hundreds of miles out of his way before the war even began to surrender to the king of Assyria, line up on his side, and he brought in costly tribute that's mentioned in the Assyrian record, silver, gold, a golden bowl, a golden beaker, golden goblets, pictures of gold, and lead. All this valuable stuff. And got down on his knees and, and hand at his servants behind him, hand this stuff over to the king of Assyria, and escape. And uh, certainly, this is incidentally the only picture or visual image that we have of any Old Testament king of either Israel or Judah. The only picture we have of any of them is this Assyrian picture of Jehu down there on his hands and knees. Would you call it, Mr. Harris, a dignified posture? <laughs> Certainly not. I would say this would be very embarrassing and humiliating, but Jehu did it. And this Assyrian uh, record, Jehu didn't um, put up any monuments about this. You can be sure of that. But the Assyrians did. And uh, there's no reason to question the uh, authenticity or the truthfulness of it. Now then, um, a little later, there was a strong king of Syria at Damascus named Haziel. He is mentioned in the second book of Kings, I believe, where Elijah the prophet comes up. Remember, Elijah wanted to die after Jezebel was out to kill him, after the Mount Carmel affair. He really had a letdown and said, Lord, take my life. I'm not better than my father." And uh, the Lord didn't take his life. He got to heaven without the Lord taking his life. But um, he was given three things to do. He was to anoint a man named Jehu as king of Israel. He was to anoint a man named Elisha to be the prophet in his place. And a man named Haziel to be king of Syria. That's a budget of items to attend to during the last part of his career. Now, as far as the Old Testament record says, Elijah uh, only got one of those done himself during his lifetime on this earth. That Elisha put up to be a prophet after him. The others two were the backlog of unfinished business passed on to Elisha, who attended to it later. But one of those things was to anoint Jehu, that we were just talking about, as king of the northern kingdom, and Elisha sent a young prophet to do this, and it was done. And the other was this man, Haziel, uh, musician upstart in Damascus, anointed to be king of Syria. And this was done. And a um, little international angle here. And this man, Haziel, became such a powerful king of Damascus or Syria that he attacked the kingdom of Israel and they lost everything um, that Jehu had won back on the east side of the Jordan River. All of Prince Jordan, this was lost. And uh, this was not regained until uh, uh, nearly, uh, well, many years later, 783 to 743, and it was 700 under Jeroboam II. Now, um, Andrew says 446 here, 
After Jesus' death, which was 816 B.C., this man Hazel became such a pest and a nuisance that Israel was practically no longer an independent country. The Syrian armies marched through the territory of Israel without even saying please. They just marched through when they felt like it. And uh, everywhere and took what they wanted and so forth so that Israel was practically um, like a conquered country or a dependency or vassal of Syria. Drastically reduced in um, territory and in power after the death of Jesus. This went on until finally uh, Jeroboam II came on the scene, a descendant of Jesus, the next to the last of the Jesus line. He uh, left the mouth and got the territory back. Now, that brings us to the end of that chapter. Well, there's one more here, an Assyrian king, Adad Nirari. 810 to 783, conquered and imposed tribute on Damascus, Israel, Philistia, Phoenicia, and Edom. In other words, the whole, the whole area conquered and reduced to paying an annual tribute by this, this guy. Now, um, the next chapter, 22, and question 448. What date did the Israelite monarchy slip into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah? Anybody want to voice an opinion on this date? Uh, wherever you put it in the general area of the bullseye, you're likely to be uh, in harmony with somebody's book. <laughs> you know what it is, Mr. Brown. 9.22 is Dr. Albright's date for it. And the uh, quick comb of Grace the seminary went on a lake has gotten out some excellent charts on uh, Bible chronology incorporating the researches of Thela and mysterious numbers of Hebrew kings there's 931 B.C. The new Bible handbook we used to use in Bible 101 937 B.C. and Dr. Edward J. Young of Westminster Seminary Introduction to the Old Testament 933 B.C. So let's say around the year 930 or somewhere in there, the kingdom split. This is the death of Solomon, followed by the Jeroboam-Rehoboam Grand Canyon split between these two kingdoms. And the northern kingdom continued to exist around 200 years till 722 or 721 when it was destroyed by Assyria. And um, this chapter deals with the rise to power of the Assyrians. Now, there is no such thing as a nice war in which people behave like gentlemen. In a war, people are going to get killed. But if you're going to have to have enemies, why fight somebody uh, like the Moabites or the um, Arameans of Damascus or somebody like that, not the Assyrians. These people were the mortal terror of the ancient Near East. They were the first to use psychological warfare, try to scare people into surrendering. And this they did. The Assyrians were simply terrible. It's one thing to fight your enemy while the war is going on and try to conquer them. It's another thing to take your captured enemies after they have laid down their arms and skinned them alive. 
This is what the Assyrians used to do. Or impale them on spikes and leave them to die an agonized, lingering death. And they would, they would, uh, you see, if, if the war broke out between Assyria and some other country, if the other country surrendered on the first day of the war, they would only have to pay an annual tribute. But if the smaller country elected to fight it out, perhaps hoping for help to come from somewhere, and then lost, then there would be this awful uh, revenge that would take place, and the Assyrians would pick out a, a large number of the most important and prominent people and skin them alive, and otherwise torture them to death. Another way they'd grab sticks from the ground, fasten their feet to this, and then get a rope around their neck and a team of horses attached to it and pull their head off. Uh, that is a gruesome way, I would say, to leave this world. But <laughs> This was the Assyrians, and uh, they used cruel and fiendish tortures as a matter of policy. This was to scare the living daylights out of all countries of the ancient Near East, so that the mere mention of Nineveh or Assyria would send the cold shivers down everybody's backbone, and people would surrender like Jesus did at the drop of a pin. Not going to run a risk of fighting those guys. And uh, so they were the terror of the ancient Near East. And, of course, God used them in his moral government to teach them lessons and bring some judgments upon the people of the kingdom of Israel. Now, during this period of 200 years of the northern kingdom, there were two main facts on the international horizon. One of these was the rise of the Syrians of Damascus and then subordinately to that and, and afterwards the rise of this new power of Assyria which was barging out, conquering and conquering and conquering to the westward. And nobody could stop them. They had the world's greatest military machine that there ever had been to that date. Uh, we could stop them today, but nobody in that time could stop them. And so this was a major fact that had to be reckoned with. Now then, um, this um, is really what gave that Israelite king Jeroboam II his break. Of course, you can say God enabled him to do it. Well, sure, but God works through all sorts of factors. And uh, Jeroboam II was able to knock the wind out of Damascus because the the Assyrians had attacked Damascus first and left them terribly weakened. And therefore, uh, they were an easy target for Jeroboam II. And this pillar uh, of Adad Nirari, partly translated in your book, page 250, tells about this. Now, Jeroboam II held um, for a while Damascus and Hamath. This means that he held the territory for a brief period of years here that the Solomon had held, and virtually, if not exactly, all the territory that God had promised to Abraham. Now, I didn't bring a Bible. Anybody got one here? Oh, you're, you got a Bible there. All right, Mr. Betty, would you please find and read Joshua 13.5? Yeah, chapter 13, verse 5, Joshua.
This is the apple pop bottle. That's all I did anyhow. Sure, that's it. That's not an unpardonable sin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's probably good. That means fat cow. Fat cow. 
Well, that was endless. He never called a spade a shovel in his whole life. <laughs> Amos the prophet, a very homespun, plain-spoken, and faithful servant of the Lord. Now, um, Tiglath Pileser III, powerful king of Assyria, reigned at Nineveh, middle of the 700s B.C., and um, Menahem, king of Israel, paid him a tribute to keep the peace. A tribute of a thousand talents of silver. Any of you have an idea how much money that would be in American dollars? Two million. This is figured just from the weight of the silver. Two million dollars. If you would figure the real purchasing power of silver, make an adjustment for the difference of that then and now, this would be several times this amount. That is, um, silver bought much more in the way of food and so forth as in those times than in the same weight of silver would buy today. But to just, just figure in the weight of the silver, at least two million dollars, and that was big money back in those times. This wouldn't be, I read of a senator in Washington who said, you save a million dollars here and a million there, and after a while it begins to run into money. Now, uh, this wouldn't be much the way national budgets are figured up at the present day, but uh, back in the time of Menahem, big money, and everybody in his kingdom must have felt the pinch of raising that money to send up there, but it brought him peace for a while. Now then, uh, uh, the king of Judah again played the fool here, Ahaz, a wicked man, Ahaz. He closed the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, among other things, but he made an alliance with Tiglath Pileser III to get aid against Israel and against Damascus. A fool thing to do. And this brought on the, the um, attack of Assyria a little later on Samaria, the northern kingdom. Now this was attacked by one Assyrian king and he died before it was over and it was taken up by another one. Now, this is all known from the Bible and from Assyrian records, which have been discovered mostly the latter part of the 1800s. Shalmaneser V attacked the kingdom of Israel and Hoshea, the last king, disappeared behind the Nineveh curtain and was never heard from again. And they fought on without their king three years and finally had to surrender. By this time, Shalmaneser himself had disappeared from this world and uh, gone to his eternal judgment. And his place had been taken by Sargon II, 721 B.C., who was the one who actually captured and destroyed the city of Samaria. Sargon II, a great king, and his palace was discovered in 1843. Samaria was the capital of the kingdom of Israel. Yeah. This was, this was the capital of the ten-tribe northern kingdom, you see. This kingdom was split in two, and there was ten tribes and two tribes. 
This is the northern kingdom, so-called, founded by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and then ruled by about 19 kings in a row after that. Incidentally, of nine different dynasties, 200 years, a little over, and nine dynasties. Uh, Some of them only lasted a week, king for a week, Uh, and uh, some of them over 100 years. But um, extreme political instability. And in Bible 102, I always take the trouble to point out that one of the greatest blessings God can give us is to live under a stable government that isn't being overthrown every little while by revolution. You know, South America, they have the coup of the, the, coup of the month down there. <laughs> and it's continual. Some of those countries have had a dozen revolutions in the last 100 years or so. And uh, very unstable. And um, a stable government. A revolution is very wasteful of life and property, of course. It's extremely destructive of these things. And uh, it's a great benefit to live under a stable government that um, isn't being overthrown all the time. The kingdom of Judah had one dynasty all the way through. <clears throat> David, Solomon, Rehoboam, and so on. Right down to Zedekiah, the last one. All of one line. Athaliah hung in there for six years, but uh, apart from that, they were all of the line of David. This northern kingdom had nine different dynasties in the 200 and some years of existence. And uh, the longest was a little over 100 years, and the, the shortest was one week. Assassination Incorporated. You want to be king? Okay, nothing to it. Kill the king, put yourself up to be king, and reign for a week till somebody comes down and kills you. That's how they used to do it. Extreme political uh, wobbliness and instability. Now, um, uh, this man Sargon, an Assyrian, Previously known only from the Bible, uh, in 1843, a French scholar, Botta, B-O-T-T-A, discovered his palace at a place called Khorsabad, near Nineveh, and um, explored it, and proved by many discoveries there, a lot of written inscriptions and so forth, that this man was indeed a real person. 